Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, August 11th, 2011. It's one of those days where I just feel like I'm chasing the clock. You know, I'm convinced that when it comes to radio, if it wasn't for the last second, nothing would get done. If I didn't have a deadline, I don't think I'd ever do a radio program. It's... Chase after this research bunny trail and head on to the next one. And thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of bizarre things being said. And it contradicts God's word, and it contradicts what the church has taught from the beginning. Uh, it, you know, I, I say it, and I'll say it again. Uh, the church is a dangerous place to be in right now. Uh, there's a lot of folks that are just chasing after some strange winds of doctrine and new interpretations and things like that. You know, I was thinking about the the whole Rob Bell thing, which, by the way, I'm, I'm hoping to do a Rob Bell segment uh, tomorrow or on Monday. So I, I'm working uh, something up. My my son-in-law, um, my brand-new son-in-law, uh, I, the, the, he actually pitched a pretty decent uh, segment idea to me and sent me to an audio of uh, a few guys talking about Rob Bell's book. And I just went, whoa, we'll have to play some of that. But I'm teaching him Greek. And uh, it's... <laughs> It's uh, it's it's rather interesting, you know, because uh, you know, working, you know, it's all Greek to you all, but uh, you know, what's funny is is that he's actually doing pretty well, and uh, uh, we we uh, we do Greek together for an hour on Wednesday nights, and uh, we we do maybe an hour to two hours over the weekend, and uh, and it, it, Greek is not an easy language to learn. I mean, I feel so bad for this kid. But, uh, you know, yesterday we were doing Greek and, uh, you know, I was quizzing him on his vocab and uh, he's uh, he, it's like certain words that he had remembered, you know, in previous weeks all of a sudden just disappeared from his brain. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I've had that happen to me. Yeah. You know, when I was uh, when I was uh, learning uh, first year Greek, that was just challenging. And so anyway, uh, this is a this is a kid who eventually wants to uh, go into uh, uh, into ministry. And uh, and so. He was uh, he was a little discouraged. I said, "Listen, don't worry about it." I said, "I'm not actually grading you on uh, you know, on on Greek. It's not like you're going to get an A, B, C, or D or whatever." I said, "You're not doing this for a grade. You're doing this to learn the language. I'm going to teach you the language." And so, yeah, it, I, that kind of perked him up a little bit. But anyway, so 
hi, Steven. <laughs> I'm telling everybody about your Greek experiences. Anyway, yeah, my new son-in-law. So, you know, just, you know, got to do things like that. Well, I mean, you know, and, and the thing is, is that, uh, you know, if, uh, if I was concerned that he was the only reason why he was interested in Greek was because he's trying to suck up to me. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I've made it hard enough for him that, uh, that if that was really his motivation, <laughs> he's truly paying for it. Anyway, so enough of my family adventures. So yeah, that, that's what. What are the what does the Roseboro family do for family bonding time? Well, we we learn Greek together. It's it's uh, it's a fine way. To, you know, in fact, forget Monopoly and card night and things like that, or watching family movies. If you really want to bond with somebody in your family, teach them Greek. Yeah, Greek the the, the language for families. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> And by the way, if if uh, any of you ever did want to learn Greek, you know, um, from time to time I do get emails from people saying, you know, I'm thinking about learning Greek. Do you have a Greek grammar that you recommend? The answer is yes. Um, uh, why am I even talking about this? I have no idea. But uh, but it um the it, it's not it, it's difficult, and at the same time, it's not completely. Impossible. It's it's not like it's impossible at all. But uh, Greek forces you to think in particular ways because uh, sentences don't you know they, they they aren't formed the same way we form sentences in English. And so as a result of it, when you're translating, a lot of times it's tricky because you have to figure out first of all you know where, what's the subject of the sentence, and then you know and then and how does the verb interact with it, and then you can work off all the different subordinate clauses. But anyway, um, the uh, the Greek uh, grammar that I use uh, when I teach people is. Uh, William Mounts's uh, The Basics of Biblical Greek. William Mounts The Basics of Biblical Greek is published by Zondervan and uh there's a good workbook that goes with it. It comes with a a CD or a DVD. I, I think it's a CD that uh, that that uh uh that you can work with and I think if you go to technia.com t t e k n i a um, then you you know you can download the latest version of the flashcard program that goes with it, and I think that at the Technia site they also have um, resources if you want to hear actual class lectures on each of the chapters. Um, that uh, that way you can you know so if you ever if you if for whatever reason you were thinking I'd really like to learn biblical Greek I think it would help me in my Bible study, and it, it will it, it will definitely help you. Um, then uh, pick up uh, William Mounts's The Basics of Biblical Greek, and Mounts is one of the guys who worked on the ESV translation. So um, this is the uh, Mounts is he knows what he's doing, and actually I prefer his grammar over the other grammars that uh, I've seen. In fact, the grammar that I learned. Uh, Greek with I I don't recommend it so so there you go you know in case you were ever wondering you know any resources for learning Koine Greek yep there you go so and I, I didn't even get a, a product placement endorsement deal nor do I need to uh, you know say thank you Lord for William Mounts's basics of biblical Greek and thank you for my smoking hot wife boogity 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 amen yeah none of that just just passing that along you know but one geek to another. So uh, there you have it. So, yeah, but uh, important language, if you're ever going to go into ministry, you need to know your biblical languages. You need to know your biblical languages because um, I, I'm telling you, the Greek verbs reveal so much. Uh, you know, it's it's one thing to have somebody say, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Greek word here, you know, it means this or that or the other. And that's that's fine. Um but where you know where the where the meaning really hits the road, the rubber hits the road I, I, concept here, um, is when you're looking at a, a Greek verb, 
and you go, oh, okay, that's in the aorist, or that's in the passive voice, or that you know, or, or you know, or, or you know, it, it's in the pluperfect. You know, when you when you start learning how the Greek verbs operate and how they you know how they run the translations, you, things begin to pop, and you go, whoa, ho, ho, I did not know that, and and you, the reason why you couldn't have known it is because those nuances don't get they don't get translated into English, so. Would you like to talk about what you want me to talk about? We're going to talk about in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. You know, you know, because I feel like some of you are going, okay, yeah, Chris, enough with the you know the big fat Greek wedding thing. Um, you know, yeah, hoopa. You know, would you like some Windex? Anyway, um, <laughs> onto the program. So what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I'm going to begin with some email. The emails are coming in. Uh, Regarding Eric Dykstra, the emails are coming in regarding Eric Dykstra, and uh, while I'm thinking, and so I'm going to take some time to read some of the emails that I've been receiving uh, regarding Eric Dykstra, uh, the uh, uh, chief vision receiver and caster there at uh, the crossing in uh, Elk River, Minnesota. And by the way, we tentatively have a date. We tentatively have a date for uh, uh, a speaking engagement for me to actually travel to Elk River, Minnesota to uh, pro, you know, basically provide uh, an hour and a half to two-hour lecture um, complete with video and other things um, on, uh, on Eric Dykstra. And uh, I think the venue that we are getting is very, 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 very close to uh, uh, the crossing there in Elk River, Minnesota. And... Um, I can tell you this. Um, I can tell you this. If uh, we're looking for some folks who would be willing to help us underwrite the event, I think all said and done, between travel and renting facilities and things like that, we'll be able to get this uh, this event done for about a thousand dollars. Do I have that? No. Um, but uh, if you would like to help support us with the uh, the, the event itself, uh, we're shooting for sept- a Friday night, September 9th in Elk River, Minnesota. And um, and the name of it is uh, Double Cross by Crossing Church. That's the name of it, Double Cross by Crossing Church. And uh, you know the uh, the folks that I'm working with up there in Elk River, Minnesota, are going to help us get the uh, word out. In fact, uh, I think there's an expose piece in the local paper uh, that's going to be running this weekend uh, regarding Eric Dykstra. But anyway, if you would like to uh, help us, uh, uh, you know, basically uh, be able to afford to. Uh, to do this service to the uh, you know for the for the folks there in Elk River, Minnesota, um, a, uh, just yeah, we're looking for some people to help us underwrite the event, and it uh, you know all said and done, we think we can we're going to be able to do it for about a thousand bucks. So uh, there you go. So if uh, you'd like to help us, you can. So uh, September 9th, Elk River, Minnesota. The name of the event is Double Cross by Crossing Church. And um, uh, you know more details soon to follow. We'll be able to announce the venue and uh, all of that and the time uh, shortly. It's as soon as we have everything firmed up. So just want to let you know that. So I'm going to read some email here uh, that has come in regarding Eric Dykstra. I've got a um, a video from Pamela Carter. She's becoming a regular on this program, just the same way Patricia King and uh, William Tapley have been. Anyway, uh, the name of <laughs> Yeah, well, is um, uh, the the dreams God has planted in you are bigger than you can accomplish without His help. Pamela Carter encourage encourages your dreams. That's the the name of the video. So it's uh, Pamela Carter. She's going to be encouraging us to you know dream um, the impossible dream. 
if that sounds like a song it is we'll talk about that later anyway so uh, and and then yesterday i did not get to i did not get to the albert muller uh, piece that i wanted to read but then i also wanted to uh, read a um a, a, a section from the scripture from the old testament uh with this question in mind um when we look at things like um uh rick perry's um response uh, event you know with the tens of thousands of people who came to gather together and pray and do things and the folks on the stage were well um uh kind of a who's who of heretics i i thought it was hilarious i was listening to audio and i heard mike bickle um of ihop uh, um talking about how there's a lot of um untruth being spoken from america's pulpits today i i almost fell out of my chair anyway uh <laughs> When you look at all of, you know, because, I mean, in America, the way you, somebody, you could tell somebody is being successful and that God is blessing their ministries because they've got huge numbers. Well, we're going to read a a section of the Bible from the Old Testament that kind of challenges this idea. Do numbers really dictate God's blessing and truth? (laughs) So we'll take a look at that. And then in hour number two, I've got a sermon review from a man that I consider one of the most dangerous men in the seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement. His name is Dan Sutherland. We've done some reviews of his uh, church transitioning seminar that he's... uh, that he's done for quite a while. And I mean, this is a guy who's helped take people who were Bible preaching pastors in churches where you could hear the word of God and transition them into purpose driven and seeker driven churches. And so we're going to be listening to a sermon that he recently pre- preached called All In. Yeah, kind of a, a uh, uh, what is it? is it? Texas Hold'em poker. Uh, yeah, it's a poker metaphor. Yeah, so. I haven't played Texas Hold'em in a long time, and yeah, and I'm no good at it. I don't have a good poker face. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really bad when uh, you know I I used to, you know I played poker a couple times. I remember playing uh, poker with some uh, uh, buddies from church one time, and uh, <laughs> the guy across the table from me says, "You got a pair of aces, don't you?" And I go, "How'd you know?" He's all. Well, because your face lit up brighter than a you know a, a police mag light. It, when you looked at your car, <laughs> like, oh, is that bad? Yeah, that's bad. You're not supposed to do that. Oh man. So yeah, I, I, <laughs> I could never make it as, as a, in a career at, at poker. And I, there are guys who they make that their career. I couldn't do it because everybody go, oh yeah. <laughs> Look at Chris's eyes. Look at his face. He just smiled a big smile and all that big teethy grin thing. He, he must have a good hand. So <sighs> yeah. So I. I my uh, my my poker career was cut short just because of the fact that I cannot hide my emotions to save my life. Anyway, why am I saying this? I have no idea. I've been talking about Greek and my lack of poker skills. Uh, let's dive into the program. So uh, we've got a uh, we, we've got a small stack of uh, emails that I've selected regarding Eric Dykstra. Now I solicited your responses. I, I in fact I, I almost got to the point of begging. 
Um, but uh, no, I really truly was looking forward to uh, seeing what you guys had. You know, what, what other things you wanted to add to what you know my analysis of Eric Dykstra's stuff. And uh, you know, of course, yesterday we found out from Eric Dykstra that uh, Jesus was a a, a blue uh, blue collar uh, uh, construction worker uh, who went to trade school and uh, had a reputation for being the life of a party and a frat boy. So I mean, there you go. I mean, I, just, I had no idea about that. You know, and you know. Didn't did not realize that anyway. Um, so I've got a few emails that I would like to read. Um, the, the, a gentleman by the name of Carter writes, and I do not know where Carter is from, so I, I can't tell you. But uh, here's what he says, Chris. In answer to your uh, request to hear your listeners' take on the Eric Dykstra saga, saga a, a few thoughts come to mind. First off, let me extend my appreciation uh, to your toil in bringing the evidence of false teaching to light. The Bible says that we are to let our light shine like a city. On top of a hill, which is essentially what your discipleship ministry is doing. It's it's not always easy, but the true word of God is meant to shine alone without the assistance of car giveaways, crass marketing, um, and clever bribes, i.e. an an invite to Kelly Dykstra's next birthday party, and and no doubt paid for with church donations. Well, well, I'm sure that Kelly and Eric Dykstra... um, you know that they probably can afford to go to the finest restaurants in Elk River, Minnesota, um, uh, with the with the I, with all of the free gift cards they've been then been getting from the people in the congregation. So you know, I mean, they could probably you know take everybody out to Outback Steakhouse for the evening. Anyway, Second uh, Timothy uh, four three through four says it beautifully. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. If people can't see this verse being played out in the crossing church, then they are simply blind and their hearts are hardened to God's true word. What are what are our own desires? Well, certainly community status clout, focusing on our own problems, pride in oneself, bragging rights on God's blessings, etc. These are all things itching ears want to hear these days, and organizations like The Crossing are set up to provide to provide that. And in terms of focusing on one's problems, this is worshiping oneself, not God's word. So when a pastor begins his sermon talking about how rough you have it and how unfair people treat you, uh, the mind is immediately focused on oneself. This is a problem. I, I would further argue that this is a false Christ in the sense that you are not listening to someone who, in Jesus' name, is pointing out your shortcomings and offering to heal them. Some of your listeners uh, may still question your podcast comments saying, Oh boy, Chris, better be careful. I, I, I can see that some of the things Eric says might be a bit off, but he's praising God's name and who are we to make the bold assertion that he's a false prophet? Well, I myself ran into this same confusion while under the leadership of a certain televangelist TV station. And there's two things I can tell you. One, God is simply not weird. Anything from Christ is true and authoritative and perfect, and innately we connect to it. When we have a true encounter with God's true word and teaching, we walk away from an encounter saying, Wow, he is loving. He is all-powerful. He created me. But false teaching will not settle too well in your stomach. They'll sound like they should be right, but you're left in a state of confusion, a state of anxiousness and feeling inadequate. The the weirdness sets in when you try to will yourself into better relationships or status with God. This is all law. And uh, tainted feelings that linger in your spirit should be a sign of a false prophet or teacher. Certainly God's word is convicting, but the correct outcome 
of that is joy through repentance and worship and praise to God, not, oh man, I got to get better and fix my spirit. Two, Satan wasn't born yesterday. A false prophet is not someone who wears a sandwich board and commands people to bow down to him on the street. No, false teachers are designed to be false, to trick you. So if Teaching, if teaching is off even a couple of percentage points, you won't notice and will become complacent. But in terms of a map, if you start at your destination two degrees off, in time you will be far from where you need to go. Now, another verse in the Bible points out another big issue that I think you have not focused on enough, which is the denial of God's power. Second Timothy 3, 1 through 7 says this, I uh, but now, but know this: that in the last times, uh, at last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. I'd like to direct your focus to the part that says having a form of godliness but denying its power. This is a huge point. Pastors like Eric and Kelly Dykstra, Kelly Dykstra, the pastrix. By the way, there is no such beast, by the way. The Bible forbids women from teaching men. Anyway, um, so pastors like Eric and his—I'm changing the sentence because it's bugging me— and his wife, uh, the usurper, uh, Kelly Dykstra, are— presented as having a form of godliness, but they are denying God's power. How? Well, in many areas. Short, contrived, and manipulated, manipulating prayers on stage, marketing, car giveaways, worldly themes, clever series topics, uh, the code, secular rock songs, flock-mocking control threats, i.e., you say something bad about this church and I'll punch you in the face. All of this denies God's power. Because if you ask them to stop all of it and simply preach the word, what would they say? They would say, but then the people won't come and we won't be in charge and we won't be relevant and we won't be blessed financially. Denying God's power. Denying that God's word alone is enough to heal the broken. Denying that God's word through Christ foreshadowed in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament is sufficient. So they may preach little bits of God's word here and there at the crossing, but they have no belief or submission to its power and authority. In fact, quite the opposite. They hate it. For if they loved it, they would only preach it and focus all of their attention to it. They don't believe in its power, so they mask it, they conceal it, they dress it up, and they rewrite it. God is not in control. Man is in control. True faith in the power of God and his word would be Eric Dykstra getting on his knees, repenting for his misdirection and saying, God, I'm through with the gimmicks. I'm through with the self-help formulas and the creative puns. From now on... I'm going to get up on Sunday morning and preach your gospel in its entirety, nothing more. And I will believe in its power alone. So if attendance falls and we lose our building, I have faith that the power of your word preached correctly is sufficient in serving you. Because here's the simple truth. The way God works is he might want you to lose your church completely. Just like the 15,000 walked away from Jesus, that makes a better testimony to what God is all about. 
You worship him and nothing else. You want to walk away from God because you don't get a car, a Motley Crue rock song, or a cool theme? Good. At least you were presented with the real gospel and were allowed to make an informed decision. And certainly if we believe in the power of God's word, then people who deny correct biblical teaching will perhaps return at a later date because the gospel alone, if we believe in its power, moves in ways that we do not see or always understand. Thank you. Carter. Carter, great email at fantastic email. Well thought out, well put together. And uh, I would say, yeah, you're right. God's word does not return to him void. It accomplishes the things for which he sends it. So we're to preach the word. God's word is sufficient. It's sufficient. The church has, it's not that the church has barely eked out a survival strategy for the last 2,000 years by preaching the word. No. Quite the contrary. The church has thrived for the last 2,000 years without gimmicks, without car giveaways, without marketing. It thrived when people heard the the word of God, showed up to churches where God's word was preached and the Lord's Supper was presented you know, for people to consume Sunday after Sunday. It's pretty simple. Preach the word, bread and wine. That's that simple. Yeah. <laughs> and it's sufficient. It's sufficient. We don't need the other stuff. It's not like the church was barely getting by. And if, if anything, I think that the reason why the church is in decline is because there's no power in the gimmicks. There's no power in the gimmicks. The power is in the preached word of God. Get back to that. Anyway, another email from a gal by the name of Lisa from Georgia. Lisa writes, she says, So many things wrong with Eric Dykstra's teaching on your August 1 edition. Most of them you pointed out already, but I, I would like to take like to add a few things if I might. For starters, I believe that you are already aware of this, but the idea that Jesus only made one thing is a direct contradiction with uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same uh, the same was in the beginning with God. All things are made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Um, Eric Dy- So the Bible uh, scores one, Eric Dykstra, zero. Secondly, I like to point out that uh, making the crossing the center of your finances, time, life, etc. is essentially worshiping the church, which doesn't make any sense. Another major, 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 that's the way she put it, major, major problem that I see with uh, what Dykstra is teaching is that his campus pastor says that if you don't agree with the code or the vision, then you can go and find another church. Well, my question would be, why is Dykstra's vision only for those in his church? If God really gave him a vision for the church, then why is it okay to go find a different church with a different vision? This implies that God has been giving out different visions to different churches and that it's okay to pick and choose which one, which vision you as a member want to fall under. God's vision in this case is so specific that only people in the crossing church have to follow it. What, what would it look like if God sent Jonah to Nineveh to call the people to repentance and Jonah told them, if you don't like the word, uh, we'll move to a different city. Or you could say that the God that Eric Dykstra got a vision from would have Elijah or any other prophet in the Bible simply relocating all of the pagan religious leaders who didn't agree with God's word. Well, it's absurd. You can't pick and choose whether or not you want to follow a vision from God by simply putting yourself under a different visionary. 
Oh, and by the way, you can't put Dykstra's vision in the back of the Bible. Nobody in his church, except for the theological nerds, would even read it. At this point, the crossing can have my seat. After all, I'm not a beer-drinking, McDonald's-eating man. I wanted to end with a thank you uh, for doing what it is that you do. My father and I often discuss your program, and we are both extremely grateful that you were able to put it into, into words the problems and issues we are having with our church. I think I will liken your program to getting professional diagnosis for the church's ailments. I know you put up with a lot of people who challenge the vision of your program. Actually, I don't claim to have a vision for my program. <laughs> program. It's more like I saw a significant need as a result of a lack of clear Bible teaching and thought, well, somebody's got to step up. It might as well be me. Anyway, um, so it wasn't a vision thing. It was like a, uh, it was like, well, it's like seeing a need in the, uh, in, you know, in the harvest and just saying, okay, well, I'll go work on that need. Anyway, uh, so, but thank you for teaching the things that nobody in the world cares about. <laughs> All right, that's uh, sorry. Fighting for the faith, the program that teaches things that nobody in the world cares about. <laughs> Sounds like a great tagline for you know coming out of a commercial, you know, going into the commercial break. Uh, uh, fighting for the faith, the program that nobody in the, uh, that teaches nothing in the world that anybody cares about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's that, that's a playoff of what Eric Dykstra was mocking. Anyway, Lisa, thank you for your email. Also, great emails. I got more of them that I would like to read, but I'm going to uh, save them for a future edition of Fighting for the Faith. And we're going to go into our uh, first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We will be right back. Itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. 
It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Right, we're back. Warning. Christ is the one who's given the vision for the church, and it applies to every single one of them. To preach the word, make disciples, baptizing in his name, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's pretty simple. Anyway, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. We truly depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. And, of course, if you would like to help us uh, you know, uh, basically offset and you know, afford the, uh, the event that we're going to be holding up in, there in Elk River, Minnesota – on September 9th, we truly could use your financial support. So the way you do that, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, what you're doing there is to sign up to contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, the, the perks with the, being a crew member is that you get access to uh, our, our ebooks as we publish them. We're working on the next one. Hopefully, I'll have an announcement on that soon. We're we're a little bit behind on that, but anyways, bear with us. We're we have uh, we have the next ones in the hopper. So, um, of course, uh, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box five zero eight Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. All right, let's uh, move along here and. Is there a day that goes by where I don't play something from these folks? It makes me wonder. Yeah, Pamela Carter, uh, she uh, has a video channel there at xpmedia.com. That would be the Patricia King gang. And uh, this is a woman who should not be teaching anybody anything about the Bible. That's, you know, all I can say is I'm not sure what she thinks makes her qualified to teach the, uh, well, anything in the Bible, but she's got a um, a, a video that, um, well, is, is encouraging us along the lines of dreams. Dreaming the impossible dream. Yeah, that's right. You heard that correctly. That's how the video begins. Let me play that again. Here, here, here. Listen in. Are you dreaming the impossible dream? <clears throat> dream. The impossible dream. Why, yes, I am. Thank you for asking, Pamela. I am dreaming the, the impossible dream. This will be Frank Sinatra's version, by the way, folks. To run 
Sing along if you know it. To right the unrightable wrong To be better far than you are To try when your arms are too weary To reach the unreachable star This is my quest to follow that star No matter how hopeless, no matter how far To be willing to give when there's no more to give To be willing to die so that honor and justice may live and calm when I'm laid to my rest. <laughs> That's just so motivating. I just... <clears throat> Sorry. I got to pull myself together there. <sighs> so are you dreaming the impossible dream? Please go on, Pamela. I can hardly wait to hear what you have to say. Well, I tell you, I think we all are. Because if the dream isn't bigger than you... Yeah. Then you don't need God, do you? You don't really need God. Yeah. Can, can, do you mind if I contradict that real quick here? Um, if the dream is bigger than me, then I don't need God. Um, I see. see here's the problem, and that is, is that well, I didn't create myself. Okay. No, I didn't. Uh, in fact, there was a time when I didn't exist, and well, then I existed. All of a sudden, boom, there it was, and uh, and I had nothing to do with it, and um, but there I was. And see, I, then I was born into well uh, onto planet Earth, and on planet Earth, um, like everywhere that I put my feet is matter that I didn't create. No, I didn't. I didn't make any of it. Um, I'm so, and then and then there's trees and and things that uh, well, I didn't create them either. You know, and, and some of them are good for like you know plant uh, for food, and I you know I so I'm eating God's food. Breathing his air, yeah, and um, and walking on his matter that he created, um, and uh, well, pretty much, I need God for just about every single solitary thing that I do. There isn't anything that I do that I am doing without God at all. Not one single solitary thing from thinking to breathing to eating to sleeping to walking and not yeah just existing i um yeah god actually uh, created me so um yeah this is kind of silly don't you think um so um this idea that i can somehow dream a dream that and in order for god to be attached to it it has to be bigger than me um yeah um everything that i do requires god every single solitary thing that i do to do it and we all have dreams we all have visions we all have you know god really put that in us to be great to do something great to be history makers to be history changers man you know i'm convinced that if you try to set out to be a history maker you'll probably fail probably fail 
Go find a way to love and serve your neighbor and do it with excellence. And, and yet maybe, just maybe, it might make history. But if it doesn't, who cares? God actually sees it. You see, that's the wonderful thing about God, is that God sees the things that nobody else sees. He sees the despised and the lowly things. He knows what you do in secret. You know, I don't have to worry about making history. I mean, you know. He put that in you. He put that in me to dream the impossible dream. Got any verses for that, Pamela? Like any at all? You know, so many children, they, they dream about being in the Olympic Games or being the president of the United States. Or, you know... You know, I'm dreaming about losing two more pounds. I've been, you know... Just some really big, big, big impossible dreams because we have a huge, big God. So if you, ha- if you have a dream about losing weight, would that be a big dream or a smaller dream? I'm confused. And I just wanted to teach a little bit about becoming the dream. Please don't. You don't know what you're doing. Because in God's economy, in God's kingdom, yes, we can dream with God, but we want his dream for our lives. Uh, God has dreams for my life? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Apparently, the God you believe in is pretty helpless. He's up in heaven. He's got big dreams for you. Oh, I hope that so-and-so will just give themselves and surrender to the dreams that I have for them. They're such great dreams, too. Oh, I'll sit up here and wring my hands and think positive thoughts in their direction so that they could... Oh, if only they knew how exciting my dream for them was. Not our own dreams, but his. And a lot of times, whatever he's put in you really is his dream. And so, if you want to dream the impossible, then you need God to fulfill it. The wor- <laughs> I'm going to lose it. I am going to lose it. Hang on a second here. Musical interlude. And uh, the world will be better for this. That one man, scorned and covered with scars, still strove with his last ounce of courage to reach the unreachable star. Hey, that was only slightly better. Okay, I can I, I can go for maybe ten more seconds. I think. Okay, are you ready? Okay, let's go. Her dream in the Hebrew chalem uh. is the primitive. The primitive root of that word is to bind firmly. Uh, I'm gonna lose it. The, 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 this. <laughs> if I were to write out a sentence in Hebrew for this woman, she wouldn't even be able to pronounce that. Like sound it out. She's probably never darkened the doorstep of a actual classroom where Hebrew was being taught. And uh, this this is when God puts a dream in our heart. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And normally, yeah. if that dream keeps repeating and repeating, and yeah, I'm that's not talking sign. about uh-huh. just dreaming at night. Right, that's yeah. part of it. Yeah, uh-huh. But if you have something deep, deep within you yeah, right. that just won't go away, this is what I really want to do. This is what- yeah, if you have something that's really, really deep within you that won't go away, you might want to go get like an ultrasound or an MRI. Just, you know, this, this is some sound advice here. Really excites me. This is what I really want to do with my life. And, and, and you're able, and that dream just stays with you. Normally, from- And all of this from your um, vast study of the Hebrew language. Wow. From the time you're a little child. 
I used to dream about doing, making movies and being on television and wow and look it's come true and i i had all those dreams and visions but it really took god to open the door for me so many people are caught up in yeah i i i don't think god is the one who opened the door for you to do these videos i'm pretty sure it was not god um might may have been a spiritual force but it wasn't um, the God of the Bible. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I'm done with you, Pamela, today. Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> I'm done dreaming the impossible dream. Call me silly, but, you know, I, I'm done. Um, <clears throat> all right. Looking at my time here, we may not get to the Al Mohler piece until tomorrow, but I did want to share with you a little Bible story, if you would. Um, as somebody who has studied the Hebrew language, I don't think I'll actually be referring to the Hebrew here um, it, it just kind of doesn't, it's not necessary to teach this particular text. But if you have your Bible, flip on over to 1 Kings chapter 22, 1 Kings chapter 22. And, and here's the question I have for you. Um, does numerical, do, do, do numbers indicate the blessing and the truth of God? Do numbers indicate the blessing and the truth of God? Okay, because, okay, we just, we just, oh man, the debacle that was the, uh, the, um, the Governor Rick Perry of Texas prayer thing that he did. Oh man, um, there, there were tens of thousands of folks there, and uh, and uh, the people who were on his dais, it was kind of like a who's who of heretics, uh, you know, including Bickle and others. Um, and then you know, also this past weekend up in Chicago, um, uh, did, I, did I hear this correctly? Some of the folks there in Chicago call it Chi Town, C H I. Anyway. At the where the White Sox play baseball, uh, you had uh, Joel Osteen's um, "America's Night of Hope," and there were tens of thousands of people there f uh, packing the stadium to hear Joel Osteen and you know, to give his positive message. And you know, of course, Joel Osteen has the largest church in the United States, the, the largest. In fact, hang on a second here. I told you that I have access to a <clears throat> a database. Okay, and um. This is kind of interesting. I, uh, the Hartford Institute for Religion uh, Research has a database of the uh, that they update regularly of the largest churches in the United States, and 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 they give the average weekly attendance. And uh, Joel Osteen's Lakewood, uh, they've got on average forty three thousand five hundred people who show up every single weekend there at Lakewood. Okay, by the way, number two. Um, you, I bet you wouldn't be able to guess who it is. I, I, you may not, you, in fact, you may even be surprised. Now, number two is, um, Craig Rochelle's church in, uh, outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma, lifechurch.tv. Now, here's the funny thing. His attendance is roughly half, half of Craig Rochelle's at, at 26,776 per week. So the next best contender in, in church attendance is uh, is Craig Rochelle's church. Now, should we assume that because 43,500 folks show up to Lakewood every single uh, every single weekend to hear Joel Osteen um, uh, give a motivational pep talk um, with Bible sprinkles, um, that, uh, that that means that God has blessed Joel Osteen's church, and that that, that yeah, and the numbers matter. Okay, um, you know, or, or or should we assume that uh, God is blessing uh, Craig Rochelle's uh, just based only on the numbers? 
only on the numbers. By the way, um, little tidbit of information here. Um, you know, on the home on the front page of this, um, yes, uh, Perry Noble's church does show up. Um, yeah, New Spring Church. Um, but I I would like to point out something here. Um, they've decreased. Um, yeah. Um, uh, Perry Noble's church there in Anderson, South Carolina, they used to have an average weekly attendance um, of more than 11,000 per week, but they're down to uh, 9,300. They're down to 9,300. So should we assume that God, uh, just only on the numbers, that God is somehow not blessing Perry Noble anymore? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, should should numbers be the thing that tell us whether or not God is truly behind somebody's ministry, really blessing their message or not? That's the question. Um, that is, and we're going to answer this question uh, from First Kings chapter twenty-two. So, here we go. Let's. Uh, if you have your Bibles, flip on over to First Kings twenty-two. I you should already be there, but you know, uh, I will be reading. By the way, from the ESV. Now, I'm not saying that the ESV is the only inspired English translation. There is no such thing. In fact, there's many times when I'm translating out of the Greek when my translation does not come out in ESV. It doesn't come out as KJV. It came, comes out as Rosebrowian English. But uh, anyway, but no, the ESV is a fine, fine, fine translation. In fact, it's I think it's, it's superior than the NIV. I found myself constantly correcting the NIV after I learned Greek, and it was driving me nuts. So I, I ditched the NIV and uh, I went with the ESV. But if you really want a translation that is um, really, 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 really close to uh, how the Greek reads, well, the NASB, uh, the New American Standard Bible, that's the one that comes out closer to the Greek text uh, than uh, than even the ESV or the NIV. The the the, the issue though is is that from a readability point of view. Just a bit on the stiff side, just a smidge on the stiff side. So anyway, I just you know wanted to let you all know that. But uh, anyway, First Kings chapter twenty-two, starting at verse one. For we read, for three years Syria and Israel continued without war, but in the third year Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel said to his servants, "Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we and we keep quiet and do not." Uh, take take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, well, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Sure, you know, no problem. So Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. And the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. 400 prophets. 400 prophets have given a prophecy that they claim is coming from, from the Lord, from Yahweh. And that uh, that the Lord is going to give Ramoth Gilead into the king of Israel. But the, notice this, Jehoshaphat wasn't buying it. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, well, all right, there is one, there's yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. 
for he never prophesies good concerning me, but only evil. <laughs> now, okay, <clears throat> so let, let me see. Again, the question is, do numbers indicate whether or not you're receiving a blessing from God if, or if you're hearing the truth? Okay, so um, let me see. One prophet versus 400. Now, wouldn't you think that if numbers were the thing to indicate whether or not God was truly behind it and truly blessing it, that just the sheer numbers would indicate, well, duh, obviously the 400 prophets are right in this Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Well, he's, 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 got, he's got problems. He, he has a negative attitude. He just needs he needs to learn how to positively confess and stop and 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 he needs to learn how to you know to give prophecies that make people feel good about themselves okay because notice okay the four hundred prophets said oh go go in fact you know you put it in Joel Osteen speak well well uh, well King the reason why you're even alive today is so that God can give you the next victory. Go into battle, and surely the Lord is going to bless you and give the victory into your hands, O king. Uh, okay, I mean, the, uh, you can see that Joel Osteen was the head of the 400 prophets, right? I mean, because they only spoke positive things, and of course, the king of Israel hated, 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 hated um, Micaiah, the son of um, Imla, because he never said anything good. So let me read verse 8 again. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Well, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. So Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. So then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on the thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor, at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And, and Zedekiah, the son of uh, Chenaniah, made for himself horns of iron. He said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into your hand, O king of Israel. Oh, isn't that positive? I mean, this is just oozing with self-esteem-boosting stuff here. Of course, it has to be coming from God because it's so positive. It's all about their next victory, right? Verse 13, and then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, "Um, Behold, the the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says to me, that and that only will I speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah... Shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? He answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains, as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. 
And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him, and on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Think about that. 400 prophets proclaiming victory. Go, king! Go! And only one, only one is daring to speak anything contrary to the 400. Shouldn't the sheer numbers tell you that what Mac Micaiah was prophesying was false? He couldn't possibly be speaking the truth. Come on! There were 400 prophets who were telling the Ahab, the king of Israel, to go to Ramoth-Gilead and that he would be victorious. Don't the sheer numbers alone tell us that what they were saying was true? Obviously, Micaiah was just a dissenter. He obviously just had a, a negative spirit. He was critical. Apparently, he had issues. Because God only wants to give us victory all the time, right? Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Judah went up to Ramoth-Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither, uh, neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot, and about sunset a cry went out through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. 
and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab, and all that he did in the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Four hundred prophets told Ahab to go and that he would be victorious. One, one, dared to speak the truth that he would die and that he would not win. Four hundred to one. Do numbers really matter? Or is it truth? That matters. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith or any previous editions, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me, my friend, on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review time coming up. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says join our crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour 
number two, sermon review time. Put your thinking caps on. And we're going to ask the question, who is this sermon about? Who is this sermon about? That's the question. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's uh, sermon comes to us uh, via Church by the Glades. And uh, their normal uh, pastor, David Hughes, is uh, not there. Um, in, instead, they've got, um, by the way, they're in Coral Springs, Florida. Instead, they have Dan Sutherland preaching. Name of the sermon, All In. Are you all in? The uh, questions that we need to answer, as I've stated coming out of the break, is who is the sermon about? Who is the sermon about? And also, um, does the Bible passage that he quotes teach the steps that he claims that, uh, well, that he preaches in the sermon? Or is he twisting and wrestling God's word to make it seem like it says something that it doesn't say at all? Now, uh, when he finally gets to the Bible, actually he gets to it pretty early on, he's going to be quoting uh, from Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, starting at verse 18. So you might want to get your Bible handy uh, to do the comparative work here. Like I said, uh, Dan Sutherland, well, I consider him to be one of the most dangerous men on the planet. So uh, let's uh, stop there. Without any further ado, here is Dan Sutherland, all, uh, all in, are you all in? Here we go. We didn't shortchange you. We've got an old church family friend here with us, folks. Pastor Dan Sutherland is here this weekend. He's hailing from the great state of Kansas, where he pastors a church in Kansas City called West Ridge Family Church. He is a great friend to our church. He's even better friends with our pastor, David, and his wife, Lisa. Church family, will you do me a favor? Stand to your feet real quick. Give a warm rowdy Church by the Glades welcome to Pastor Dan Sutherland. Wow. Dude, you got him going, baby. Thanks, man. Wow. Thank you. Blessings, please. Could you guys move to Kansas and teach my folks how to do that? That would be so incredible. It's great to see you turn to the person nearest to you and say, you're better looking than who I expected to sit with at church. Tell them. Yeah. There's three guys right here in the front going, I ain't doing that, man. It's not that kind of church, dude. I'm just, I'm just not doing that. I am so grateful to be here. It's been my honor to come out about once a year for the past a whole lot of years. In fact, the first time I spoke for this church, it was Coral Baptist over on University Drive literally more than two decades ago. And I've had the privilege of watching God show up in this place and just do amazing things. Go, God. Go, God. Pastor David, back in 2004, 
called me and said, hey, Dan, we're in our last Sunday in the building over in university. We're about to move out to the campus out on the expressway. Would you be willing to come and talk to us? This is 2004 about how God is going to raise the bar for us as we take on a new challenge. And I said, sure. And I came and had a great time. So two months ago, David called me and said, hey, Dan, I remember you did that in 2004. We're about to move into a new building. It looks like the last weekend will be July 23rd, 24 in the old facility. That happens to be the Saturday and Sunday before lobster season. (laughs) David knows my language. Would you pray about coming out and speaking to the church? I said, hold on, David. Yes. God said yes, and he said it so fast. It's amazing how that works. So I am honored to be here today. It has been a glorious thing that God has done at Church by the Glades. But here's what I want to say to you. Forget about it. Forget about it. That's the past. What God has planned going forward is going to blow our minds. It's going to be a God thing. Now, how does he know? Has he received a prophecy from God? Uh, is he one of the 400 prophets of Ahab? I mean, I'm curious. How does he know that the next thing that God's going to do is mind-blowing? How does he know? So, I want to speak to you today about what does it take for a people to embrace everything God has. What happens What does God it fi- take? What does it take for a people to embrace everything that God has? This all falls under the category of law, something you have to do. God waiting in heaven for you to do it. Finds a people that will fully partner with him, that will say yes to him before they even know what the question is. That like Jonah, the, the prophet Jonah, like that guy? That have a whatever-it-takes response in their hearts before God even breathes a new direction. And we're going to use a passage out of Isaiah to read together. I want you to read it with me in your We Are Rowdy Sunday Ready to Worship Church by the Glades people. It's going to be up here right now. It starts out about forget the past. Now, I'm going to ask just a question. Before he even reads this passage from Isaiah chapter 43, starting in verse 18, Ask yourself this question. Is this passage a prophecy by Isaiah for Church by the Glades to let them know what a mind-bogglingly amazing thing, new thing that God's going to do at their particular congregation? Is that why Isaiah the prophet wrote this prophecy? Well, uh, we're going to ascertain that at the front end of this sermon. Okay, So if you have your Bible... You should be in Isaiah chapter 43. You might need to turn back a page. We're going to take a look at Isaiah chapter 42. Okay? Isaiah chapter 42. Because here's the deal. To correctly understand God's word and to be discerning, you need to learn how to read it in context. And understand this, that God the Holy Spirit... um, We talk about the one sense in which God the Holy Spirit intended it Uh, his word to be understood. God's word is not a wax nose. It's not a piece of silly putty. You don't get to take it and bend it into funny little animals and things like that. And in fact, 
pretzel creation is not a is not considered a means of being faithful to God's text, taking God's word and turning it into a pretzel. That's a bad thing. Uh, the scriptures t- themselves talk about those who twist God's word to their own destruction. So remember, the job of a pastor is to preach the word, and Dan Sutherland, well, he's a pastor. So the question is, is he rightly handling God's word here? Is Isaiah chapter 43 about anything that you and I are supposed to do, okay, so that we can experience the next level thing of God? Well, to answer the question, we're going to look in context at Isaiah chapter 42 to kind of figure out what's going on in this section of Isaiah in the greater context here so that we can figure out what's you know what's God talking about here, okay? Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Hmm, sounds like a prophecy about Jesus. Okay, this is Isaiah 42. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Okay, now we can see what's going on here. God here is making his appeal to the idolatrous Israelites through the prophet Isaiah, calling them to repent of their idolatry and their worship of idols, and promising to be merciful and forgiving to them. Okay? Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell them, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastland. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all of their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up their pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, so that you may see. 
Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, uh, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this and will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand it, burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Now Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Siba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored. I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down and they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not yet perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, 
The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins, and you have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake and will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. So, um, yeah, okay, so um, I, don't see, I don't see church by the glades um, in here. I, just, I don't see this church at all in here, especially in, in verses 18 and 19. Um, which is weird because uh, here uh, Dan Sutherland is quoting Isaiah 43 verses 18 and 19, and somehow this has something to do with church by the glades. Yet this was spoken to Israel because of their idolatry, God calling them to repent and be forgiven. That's what's going on here. God declaring that there are no other gods except for him, and with him there is forgiveness, and he does blot out transgressions and remember them no more. Notice law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Here in this passage, for even you know Israel who has, well, abandoned God and chased after, or the right way of saying it, whored after false gods. Even now God is pleading with them and offering them forgiveness and calling them to repentance and to be forgiven. Pointing out the fact that they had burdened that they had burdened him, God, with their sins. Hmm. I don't do you see church by the glades in this passage? I I don't. I don't see my church in here. I don't see your church in uh, yeah, I just weird. Okay. Well, let's hear what Dan Sutherland does with this passage now. Let's read it out loud, rowdy together. Are you ready, church? Here's what God is saying to us. Forget about the past. It is nothing compared to what I'm going to do. For I'm about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland to give drink to my people. God is looking for a people to partner with him. He is looking for a church. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, that's what we call the heresy two-step. Let me explain how that one goes. Uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of uh, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, is the one who coined that phrase, the heresy two-step. The way it starts, uh, the heresy two-step begins with a, a pastor quoting a biblical passage, reading it. And then what he does is the way that the, the, the dance works is he backs up in a way where nobody notices that he's no longer standing on that passage. And he shimmies to the right or to the left so that what he then says actually isn't taught in the passage, but he's done it in such a way to create the false impression that that verse actually is teaching 
the things that he says it's teaching, but the, what the, he's saying it teaches it, it isn't what it teaches like at all, like not even close. So, yeah, in case you missed it, let me back up the audio just a smidge because what I mean, it ha- he's Dan Sutherland is like gifted at the heresy two step really, really good at it. OK, it happens like within a blink of an eye. OK, he finishes reading this text, which isn't about anything going on at uh, Church by the Glades there in Coral Ridge, Florida. It has nothing to do with them at all. And um, unless, of course, they're Israelites who've been engaging in idolatry, you never know. Um, uh, but uh, it, it has nothing to And so he, immediately he launches. He, so he backs up quickly, shimmies to the left and then starts saying stuff. But that has nothing to do with the passage he just read. Here, here listen again. Wasteland to give drink to my people. God is looking for a people to partner. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, Isaiah forty three eighteen and nineteen does not say anywhere in it that God is looking for a people to partner with Him. Isaiah forty two and forty three is God calling Israel to repent of their idolatry and be forgiven, to abandon their worship of false gods and carved images and worship the one true God. And even now God will forgive them. That's what the text is saying. You get it? Yeah. Where does it say in there that God's looking for a people to partner with him? With him. He is looking for a church to say, I will do whatever it takes to win my city to Christ. And there are four pieces of that that I want to unpack for us today. Four pieces. There's four things in this passage that you claim are about partnering with God to win your city to Christ that are found in Isaiah 43 18 and 19. Oh, I can hardly wait. I, uh, how much do you want to bet not one of these four pieces is actually in the text? Some of them we're hitting an A-plus on. Some of them we got to stretch into. The great part of my role at Church by the Glades is I come in once a year, I cause trouble, and I go home. Yeah, that's good. That's probably an accurate way. It caused trouble by twisting God's word and making it say things it doesn't say. That's some trouble we can all do without. Is that a job or what? So I'm going to do a little bit of that today, and I want you to stretch with me, and I want you to lean in with me, and I want you to be saying, God, what do I have to do to be all in? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? This is all law. This isn't gospel. What do I have to do to be all in? Now, if you're a guest today, I'm not speaking to you. I'm thrilled you're here. You picked a great day to come and to check out Church by the Glades. But if this is your home church, if this is where you usually worship, if this is where God has been working in your life, this is between us and him today. I'm asking God to speak and to speak big. Four things it takes to be a people who will be all in for God. Here's four things that it takes for a people to be all in for God. Yeah, I don't recall reading anything in Isaiah chapter 42 or 43 that outlined four steps or things that people have to do to be, quote, all in for God. Weird. Why did he even read that passage? Oh, I know why. To make it look like what he's preaching is biblical. But remember, the question on the table is, who is he really preaching about? Here's the first one, and we have it in spades. It takes solid leaders. 
God never does something significant in the kingdom without putting solid leaders in place. You, you got a passage for that? You got any verses that say that God doesn't do anything in the kingdom without first putting solid leaders in place? Because um, I can point you to passages throughout the Bible where there were really miserable leaders in place and God was doing things and calling them to repent. The kingdom was advancing forward, but without their leadership. You know what I mean? Um, so, I, yeah, where did you, how do you get that out of Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19? I mean, I'm curious. I mean, let me, let me, re, let me read the text again. Um, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Hmm. I don't see anything in here about God won't do anything to advance the kingdom without first putting leaders in place. Yep, I don't see it. Now, I've had the privilege of speaking in 300 different churches and 200-plus pastors' conferences over the last years. I've yeah, you've been a veritable wrecking ball. I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I can attest that you have done some serious damage to a lot of pastors. I've been around a long time, got a lot of miles on this body, and a lot of miles left to go, I hope. But I have seen places that have grown big that is not the same as being used by God. Sometimes a church grows big simply because they have a phenomenal speaker. And we have an incredible speaker in Pastor David Hughes, but that is not the reason God has blessed Church by the Glades. Sometimes a place grows big because they got a good-looking leader. Now, I deal with this one a lot. I mean, come on, people. There's a lot of men standing up here, you know. Again, I ask the question, who is he preaching about? Is he preaching about Christ? Is that the subject of his sermon? So that at the end of it, people will know and worship Jesus, that they will understand what Christ has done for them, who he is, and how much he loves them and has sacrificed for them and redeemed them. It's weird that, you know, there in Isaiah 43 are these wonderful passages that talk about how God will forgive and remember transgressions no more how merciful and kind and loving he is, willing to pardon and calling sinners to repent of their sin, their idolatries, and he will forgive them. But he didn't read any of those passages. So who's, the, who's this sermon about? Is it about Jesus? Is it about our merciful God who calls us to repentance and, be, and forgiveness? Or is it about somebody else? <laughs> Sometimes a place just takes off because they got charismatic, gifted, sharp-looking leaders, and we have that at Church by the Glades, but that is not why God has blessed. Sometimes it's just sheer talent and ability to cast a vision and to motivate people toward it. And we To cast a vision, that means receive a direct vision from God. Cast the vision is to tell the people what the vision is and motivate them to get behind it to make the vision come about. That's exactly what he's talking about. Dan Sutherland, by the way, is the, um, is, you can call him the father of Perry Noble. He's one of Perry Noble's church methodological fathers. And, and also Eric Dykstra. We have that at Church by the Glades, but that is not why God has done this. God has done this 
because of the heart of our leader and the heart of the leaders he's pulled around him. Oh, um, well, that doesn't make any sense because Jesus himself says out of the heart comes all kinds of vile things, you know, sin, adultery, murder, theft, things like that. Those those all spring up out of the heart. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not buying it. Yeah, I, I don't believe that your pastor has a pure heart. I want you to see what the scripture says about this. God is looking for that kind of a person. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth for those who can speak the stars down. Is that what it says? For those who are good looking and studly. Is that what it says? For those who are gifted beyond belief. No, for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I have known our pastor for 28 years. Okay, uh, yeah, by the way, he didn't give the uh, <clears throat> the verse for that. If you have your Bible, Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 is what he's quoting out of context. Second uh, uh, Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. If you have your Bible, flip on over there. Again, well, now, in order to uh, be able to correctly understand what's going on in this verse, we have to read that context, context, context. So let's look at verse 1, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 1. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Aijan, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had been building, and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. Now at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. This is a previous an engagement that the Lord had won. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. Now, look what happened here. Asa was shrewd politically. He enlisted the help of the Syrians, and he won a great victory. Great victory. 
And God sent a prophet basically saying, hey, listen, uh, here's the deal. You didn't rely on the Lord. You relied on the king of Syria. That's not good. Okay. And here's the verse, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this. Now, does this verse say that your church will be blessed if your pastor is as a, a heart toward God, is blameless and, and does good things? No, that's not what this verse says at all. And this verse was actually spoken in in rebuke, but the, this verse doesn't teach works righteousness or self righteousness. For the question is, how is one's heart blameless towards God? Answer: Go back to Genesis fifteen. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Think about your own faith: Are you declared righteous before God? Because you you are you follow his law and do think you know do good works, well no because you sin daily and you sin much. So how is it that you were declared righteous before God? You believe and trust in Christ for the promises of the forgiveness of your sins. So the way someone's heart is made blameless before God is by trusting in Him. Who did Asa trust in? himself, his shrewdness, and the king of Syria, of course. But he didn't trust in God. That's why he's being rebuked. But see, here's the deal. This is the second verse, the second verse that Dan Sutherland has completely ripped from context to make it appear that the reason why God's blessings are upon Church by the Glades is because their leadership has somehow, or they have somehow done right things, yet none of the verses he's quoting actually teach the theology that he's teaching. In fact, far from it, and quite the opposite. That's more than problematic. This is a red flag. I knew David Hughes when he was a 21-year-old student at Baylor University chasing co-eds. I have dirt on David Hughes. Pounds of it. Come see me. Even then, he was a great speaker and a good-looking guy and had great ability, but the defining characteristic of his life was he had a heart for God and a heart for helping people find their way back to God. And God has honored that heart. He's honored it by bringing other staff with the same heart alongside it. I have never seen a church with the depth and the quality and the number of godly, fully go-after-Jesus leaders that we have at Church by the Glades. I'm blessed. We're, we're there. Go, God. But again, I ask the question, who is he preaching about exactly? But here's the deal. God is the ultimate manager. He manages the universe, guys. Does okay with it. In fact, he does well. And he never stockpiles that kind of leader with that kind of heart. He never stockpiles those kind of people in one place unless he intends to do something huge. It takes solid. Really, where in the Bible does it say that God does that? God stockpiles these kinds of leaders when he intends to do something huge. Got a verse on that one, Dan? Solid leadership to become a people that are in the middle of a movement 
of God. We have it. I'm grateful. Now that I've done point number one exactly the way Pastor David wrote it out for me, Point number two is this. The second thing you got to have to be a people where God shows up big is you got to have faithful servants. Faithful servants. People who will get. So God will only show up big if you follow these four steps. You need leaders and faithful servants. Again, where in the Bible is this clearly taught? I'd like chapter and verses that lay out these st- four steps in this order. Where is he getting this theology? Out of their chair and onto their feet and do something in the kingdom of God. One day Jesus had his 12 guys hanging out with him. You know, the disciple guys, the guys were a little rough on the outside and a little rougher on the inside. And uh, Jesus is away from them, but he can hear the conversation they're having. And they're arguing. The testosterone is flowing with these 12 guys. And they're saying, I'm godlier than you are. I'm going to have a higher place in heaven than you're going to have. In fact, I'm going to be in the front of the line. And you're going to be so far at the back, we need binoculars to find you. And the other guy says, no, 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 no. I am confident that I'm going to. I'm not familiar with this passage from the gospel are you guys familiar with this story gonna be higher in heaven than you are and one guy says guys i hate to break this to you but jesus already told me i'm his favorite you know and i'm gonna like have the seat next to him in heaven so you guys can argue about second chair and third chair and fourth chair but i've got first chair and jesus overhears the conversation and says the greatest among you will be the servant of all I guarantee you it got quiet in that moment. And these guys that have been arguing about how great they were in the kingdom were put in their place to realize it's not about being first, it's about being last. The greatest in the kingdom say, I will serve. I will lay down my life. I will do whatever it takes to advance the kingdom. Now, here's the struggle. We've all been here, so let's all get in this boat. When you first come to a church, you come as a consumer. You've got your checklist of what you're looking for in a church. And this is good. It's the way it should be. You're looking for good speaker. I mean, nobody wants to come to church and be bored. You're looking for great music. Think you could find any of that around here? Maybe so. You're look- you know, what's weird is, is the way he tells that story about, you know, you know, the, the first will be last and the greatest will be your servant. I mean, it's it's really a bad paraphrase of the story, but what's weird is is that in the seeker-driven movement, the, you are the ones who are expected to be the servants. The leaders are the vision casters, and you've got to get behind that vision, and you need to make that happen. It's like everybody's supposed to be a servant except for the pastor. He doesn't have to be a shepherd. He doesn't need to obey God's word and feed God's sheep and serve God's people. No, you've got to get behind his vision, and you need to serve. Isn't that weird? Just, you know. Looking for a kids program because you got kids, or you're looking for a singles program because you're single, or you're looking for, and you've got your checklist, and you go through it, and when you find the church that's got your checklist, you come. You come as a consumer. We all do. Here's the trick. Somewhere along the journey of following Christ, you have to move from being a consumer to being a contributor. 
why? Why? Why do I have to contribute at my church? Why can't I go to church and have the pastor as the under-shepherd of the great shepherd, Jesus, feed and care for me, one of God's sheep? I go to church. I go there to receive from God his word and the Lord's Supper. I go there to receive from God. I hear his word. I hear about the forgiveness of sins. I I go to the communion rail, and I'm on my knees, and the pastor comes by, and he says, Take, eat the body of Christ broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he comes by a second time with a chalice full of wine, and he gives me a sip of it. He says, Take, drink the blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. When I go to church, I go to church and I'm receiving. I'm receiving God's word. I'm receiving the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Um, what am I what else am I supposed to do? I mean, why is it a sin if that's the only thing I do Sunday after Sunday is go to church to receive God's word and the Lord's supper? Where in the Bible does it say I have to go from being, quote, a consumer to being a contributor? Where? Where does it say that? Now, granted, to some are given teaching gifts and, you know, and, and, and you know, they need to serve by taking the gift that God has given them, the ability to teach and serve God's sheep by teaching and feeding them. That's what pastors are to do. But I would challenge this whole idea that I'm a consumer. I don't go to church to be a consumer. I go to church because I am one of God's sheep. And the job of the under-shepherd, the pastor, that's what pastor means, shepherd, is to care and tend for me one of God's sheep. I'm not a consumer. I'm a sheep. Big difference. Big difference. So weird. I mean, this this whole seeker-driven idea, you've got to serve. No, 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 no. The job of the pastor is to serve the congregation with the gifts of God. It's like they're 180 degrees. They've got it all backwards. You see, the thing is, is that everybody who shows up to church, at least the church I go to, they've been busy in their vocation all week long. Moms, dads, husbands, wives, employees, employers, children, students, teachers. They've all been busy all week long serving their neighbor in their vocation, loving their neighbor through the vocation that God has put them into, which are truly good works. It's a good work to change poopy diapers. It's a good work to make a meal for your family. It's a good work to get into your car and commute to the cubicle rat, uh, to the cubicle, I'm sorry, to the, <laughs> to the cubicles at the, at the, at the office. Yeah, I, I, I don't particularly, I call it a rat maze from time to time. But you, you understand, that's actually a good work. It's a good work to serve your neighbor in your vocation. So when people show up to church, they're spent. They've spent the whole week serving their neighbors in their vocation. And they are gathered together to receive from God, who is there to serve them with his word and with the Lord's Supper. 
Weird, isn't it? I just Dan Sutherland has it 180 degrees backwards. You are supposed to become a contributor to help move the pastor's vision along. And all of this is law. There's no gospel here. He seems to be avoiding the gospel like the plague. But again, I ask the question, who is he preaching about? You got to move from I'm here for what this church can do for me to I'm here for what I can do for God in this church. You got to move God, from sir. Whoa, 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 whoa. God isn't served by men. Did, yeah, I'm sorry. God is not served by men. We, <laughs> what, oh man, I got, I got to back that up. There, no, I, this is, this is way, 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 way wrong. God serves us. He doesn't he doesn't need to be served by us. You got to move from I'm here for what this church can do for me to I'm here for what I can do for God in this church. You got to move from serve me to I want to serve others. And yeah, but I listen, everybody at the church I go to serves others already in the vocations that they have. The pastor has a vocation too, and his job is to serve God's sheep. Yeah, um, th this is way, 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 way off. And to do it, here's the plainness, you got to get off your blessed assurance. <laughs> it's time to get off our blessed assurance and get in the trench and start serving. Now, every time I talk to people about do something for God, they say, I don't know what I'd do. I can't preach like David. I can't sing like just. And yet the gospel is the good news of everything that God has already done for you. I can't do all. I don't know what I'd do. Two stories, true stories, people that have changed my life, and my understanding of service. I want to share both of them with you. The first one is about a girl named Sherry. Sherry was a first-time guest at our church years ago. And on that particular Sunday, we were adding a new worship service. So we were doing something sort of like we're doing here at Church by the Glades today. At the end of the service, we were having a volunteer orientation and trying to get new greeters we were after greeters for the new service. So they asked me to make an upbeat announcement. You pretend you're at our church that day, and here's how I did the announcement. Hey, church, we are looking for some excited people. We are looking for some extroverted people. We are looking for people who love to talk and love to be kind and love to greet people to greet in our new service. Now, if you talk like this, and this is as excited as you ever Can I ask a question? Who's he preaching about? Ever get... Please don't volunteer to be a greeter. <laughs> but if you're up and you're excited and you are looking forward to what God's going to do and you can convey that to people as they come in the door, go out into our commons, our foyer, our lobby after the service, and we will have a greeter orientation. We want you to join us in greeting people in our new service at the church. That was the announcement. Thank you. Can you move to Kansas? That would be awesome. We, I think, wait a minute. I think God's saying you should move to Kansas. <laughs> At the end of that first service, one of our leaders came up with a new person that I'd never met before, a young lady, and he winked at me when he brought her up. Now, let me let you in on a secret. Code at our church 
is that when leaders are about to surprise me with something, they wink at me first. (laughs) Wink means buckle up your seatbelt, Dan. This is a wild one. So he winks at me and brings up this lady named Sherry. And he says, Dan, this is Sherry. She's a first-time guest today. She was in the first service. She heard you ask for greeters, and she was the first one to come up to me out in the lobby and say, I want to be a greeter. Can a first-time guest be a greeter? And I'd never had that question before, so I thought we'd ask you. And I said, absolutely, Sherry, it's good to meet you. Did you enjoy the service today? I've never been in a church like this, she said. I said, awesome, and you want to be a greeter? She said, yeah. I said, can you start next week? She said, I can start next service. And I said, really? She said, yeah, I'd like to stay for the next couple of services and greet if that's okay with you. I mean, this was a great experience. I'm thinking, thank you, Jesus. Wow, this is awesome. So I said, absolutely. My friend here will get you set up, and he'll give you a little coaching on how to greet. Let me know how it goes. So I forget about it. We do the second morning service. And at the end of the second service, my friend comes back in and says, Dan, we got to talk for a minute. I said, no problem, dude. What's up? He said, Sherry is wild. I said, what do you mean she's wild? He said, well, I put her at the main door because I've never had anybody that excited about their first time experience. And I noticed people were were laughing and chuckling after they came by her. So I got up close and listened to what she said. And this is what she was saying. This is my first Sunday at this church. I don't know if I believe in this Jesus stuff, but this is one hell of a church. That's what she's saying. Now, Sherry is still with us. Her language has improved a little. Her excitement is still off the hook. But here's the wild thing. This lady, before she came to faith in Jesus, did more to serve him than some of us that have been knowing him for 20 years have done. It's time to get off your butt. In Jesus' name. It's time to move. It's time to step out. If Sherry can serve, anybody can serve. Second story, really life-changing person for me. When I first went to Flamingo Road Church years ago, decades ago now, before it was Potential Church, and I was there as a 33-year-old pastor, we had an 82-year-old leader in our church named Lincoln Love. Some of you with background from that church will remember Lincoln, five foot two, weighed about 120 pounds soaking wet, 82 years old, talked in a gruff voice all the time. He wasn't mad, but he sounded mad. He prayed like that. He sang like that. It's not like something was stuck in his throat. And he came up to me my first Sunday. He said, Pastor, my name is Lincoln Love. I've been here forever. I think you're too young for the job and you're too green. But you're my pastor and I'm with you. And I want you to know I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Okay, now let me provide a counterpoint. Acts chapter 17, Paul preaching the gospel to the Athenians at the Areopagus. Here's what it says, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observe the objects of your worship. Now I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
So what therefore you worship as a unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is not served by us. God calls us into the ecclesia, into the church, to be served by him. He doesn't need you, but you need him. He doesn't need your service, but you need the service that he rendered on your behalf by living a perfect, righteous life under the law and dying as your substitute on the cross. You need to hear his word, but he doesn't need to hear yours. You see, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God is not served by the hands of men. He doesn't need your service. The reason why we go to church is not to serve God, but to be served by him. You point me in a direction and I'll go. I won't even have to like it. I'll do it because I love you and you're my pastor and I support you. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Now, I didn't know if he was for real or not, so I gave him the worst jobs in the church. I mean, he served for a while on a maintenance crew. He worked in the kitchen. I mean, I'm finding out if this guy's for real. He did it with joy. He gruff. He was gruff, but he did it with joy the whole time. And over the next five or six years, this guy was the most phenomenal servant leader of our church. He embraced what God was doing in an unbelievable way. And when he was in his late 80s and terminally ill, Lincoln came to me one Sunday and said, Pastor, I don't think I can volunteer anymore. I'm sick. Takes about all my energy just to get here. But I want you to know something. My wife and I are going to come 15 minutes early before the first service in the morning. And we're going to stay all day long through every service you do. And we're going to sit on the front row and pray for God to show up and do something huge. I can't serve anymore, Pastor, but I can pray. And that's going to be my service. And the Sunday before the man died, he prayed through six services for us. Don't tell me you can't serve. If Sherry can serve before she knows Jesus, and if Lincoln can serve on his deathbed, it's time to get off your blessed assurance and do something. Now, if you're saying, I don't know what to do, great! Today, when this service finishes, you can walk into the new building, and there in the lobby, they're doing an orientation where they're signing people up to serve. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's time to get off your blessed assurance. Tell them. <laughs> Go on, tell them. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, is Dan pointing people to their crucified and risen Savior? Is he preaching Christ? Is he actually correctly preaching God's word? Now, notice um, the stories that he told about Lincoln and about Sherry. I mean, he 
as far as I can tell, he told those stories correctly in context. But has he treated God's word with the same level of accuracy as he told the stories regarding Lincoln and Sherry? Again, who is this sermon about? First, we got to have leaders that are solid. Secondly, we got to have servants that are faithful. Third thing it takes for a movement of God to happen is generous givers. Okay, where are these steps again laid out clearly like this in the Bible? Where are, I mean, because all of this is right self-righteousness. God's waiting for you to do all of these steps, to jump through these hoops before he will bring the, quote, movement of God upon your life. Hmm. Strange God. Generous givers. People that decide it's more important to invest in the kingdom than it is to invest in themselves. Now, every time a pastor mentions money, it gets very quiet. But I'm 55 years old. I've been doing this 35 years. I'm leaving tomorrow. And even if I weren't leaving tomorrow, I'm just at the place in life where it's too short to not just say the truth and move on. Here it is. Well, you haven't spoken the truth from God's word at all. Like, literally, at all. Every passage you've quoted was out of context and didn't support any of the things that you're pointing us, pointing us to. And you're not even pointing us to Christ. When you love someone, you give to them. Period. Bada beam, bada boom. That's Italian. Everybody get it? it? means we're done. We're done. When you love someone, you give to them. Check out what Jesus said about this. He said, for where your treasure is, your money, there your heart will be also. And then in the Gospel of Mark, he flipped it around and said, for where your heart is, your money will be also. What does that mean? It means you show me your checkbook, your bank account, your ATM receipts, and I can tell you what you love. It's not hard. I can tell if you love to shop. I can tell if you love golf. I can tell what you love by where you spend your money. It's always been that way. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, very, very traditional. And we went every Sunday because the rule of my daddy's house was if you sleep in my house on Saturday night, you're going to church with me on Sunday morning. By the way, that's still the rule of his house, and it aggravates me. I'll go there to vacation from doing six or seven services a weekend, and I'll say, Dad, I'm sleeping in, and he'll wake me up on Sunday morning and say, you slept in my bed last night. Get up. We're going to church. I'm 55, and my dad's making me go to church. My favorite verse in that little church I grew up in that I'd been taught from the time I was small was John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, that means one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, by the way, that is a bona fide uh, gospel nugget. That's the gospel right there. And there it went. Moving kind of quickly, don't you think? Later as an adult, I realized you can put the period in a different place on that verse. No, you can't. For God so loved the world that he gave, period. Uh, no, there is no period. That that turn, turns the gospel into something a little bit different. 
What did he give? His son, who bled and died for the forgiveness of my sins and yours. His baby boy. Yes. I've got a son, and I love you guys, but I wouldn't give him up for the whole lot of you. Yeah, it's not about you. I don't understand the kind of love that can give up your son. But wow, it's a love. When you love someone, you give. I'm at a notice he just took this gospel passage and flipped it. It is now law. And it's it's it, God so loved the world that he gave. And if God loved the world so much that he gave, you better get out your checkbook and write a check and start giving. That is a complete mangling of that text. This is a crime that you're hearing committed. A great part of life, I have three grandkids. Anybody with grandkids? Is it the best part of life? It's like watching your heart walk around on very short legs. I got three-and-a-half-year-old twins in Charlotte, a a boy and a girl, and a two-year-old grandson who lives 20 minutes from us in Kansas City. His name is Justice. Is that a cool name for a boy? I want him to have a sister and name her Mercy. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? Justice. And this kid has got my heart. He's just wrapped me around his little finger. Every Friday morning, I spend with Justice. We have what he calls Papa Time. Papa time, his name for it. And Friday's my day off, so I pick him up early, and we do two things every Friday morning. The first one is we go to IHOP. Now, why do we go to IHOP? Because Again, I ask the question, who is he preaching about? He's not preaching about Jesus. I mean, we got a cameo appearance of the gospel, but then he took the verse, literally rewrote it, and turned it into law rather than gospel. Who is he preaching about? Hmm? Because kids eat free, people. (laughs) I order my little high-protein omelet, and I order him the little five silver-dollar pancakes thing that's free because he's a kid and because he can only eat two of them. (laughs) He doesn't call it IHOP. He has renamed the restaurant Papa Bites. Because it's where we have Papa time, and his word for food is bites. He doesn't say food yet. He says bites, bites, Papa bites, can cakes, can cakes, Papa, Papa bites. I'm going to write IHOP and say, change the name of your restaurant. (laughs) And we go from Papa bites to God's gift to all grandparents, Walmart. (laughs) Now, why is Walmart God's gift for every parent? Because you can buy something cheap for your kids or your grandkids. And every Friday, we have our meal together, and we go to Walmart, and I spend money on this kid. Why? Everybody watching? Because he's got my heart. And if he has my heart, he also has my wallet. (laughs) If somebody's got your heart, they've got your wallet. Don't bother to tell me you love Jesus if you don't give, because I don't buy it. You might admire him. You might think he's worth listening to, but love gives. And God is looking for a people who will respond to his gift. Why don't you tell me more about his gift? Maybe I might respond to it. Of his son by giving their all 
to him. What does it take for God to show up and create a movement, a movement that's going to win a city? So So God won't show up and create a movement until you follow these four steps and three of them have been given. Yet the Bible doesn't lay out any of these steps. Dan Sutherland has just made this stuff up all by himself, created his own steps. Solid leadership, faithful servants, generous givers. Here's my favorite one. Big dreamers. Big dreamers. God is looking for a people who will partner with him in something big. How big? My favorite verse the last 20 years is 1 Corinthians 2.9. I want us to read it together, but here's how I want you to read it. God, what are you about to do at Church by the Glades? There's the question. Let's read the answer. No, 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 no. Stop, stop, stop. You can't do that. No, that's twisting God's word. That's eisegesis. 1 Corinthians 2.9, huh? <clears throat> um, Let's read this in context to find out what this verse really teaches, what the Holy Spirit really intended to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Hmm. Dan doesn't seem to be doing that at all. I mean, he doesn't seem to know anything except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Yeah, he, he, Jesus got an honorable mention, but the verse that he quoted got rewritten so that the gospel got taken out of it. Verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in, the, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now you'll notice here, verse 8. Let me read this again, because he's he's going to have the people of church by the glades read verse 9 with the question in mind, what is God about to do at church by the glades? You can't do that here at all, because watch what happens with this verse. Pay attention to the grammar. None of the rulers of of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God 
has revealed to us through the Spirit. Notice verse 10 says that God has already revealed these things to us through the Spirit. He's really talking about the mystery of Christ's crucifixion and death and our redemption through Jesus. And this has been revealed by God already. So what Dan Sutherland is doing right now is, again, a complete criminal. It's criminal. This is a complete criminal twisting of this passage. And this is not how you are to handle God's word. In fact, uh, anybody who's doing this kind of stuff that calls himself a pastor, you need to get out of that church. That pastor's sending people to hell. What are you about to do at Church by the Glades? There's the question. Let's read the answer. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. Really? These eyes have seen a lot. God says, I'm going to do something you've never seen. I've heard a lot that God has done. God is saying, I'm going to do something you've never even heard of. God isn't saying any of that. You've completely twisted that passage. And I'm a big dreamer. But God is saying, I'm going to blow your mind by doing things you can't even dream of. He wants to give this city to some church. Really, God wants to give the whole city to a single church. I don't think so. You see, cities don't belong to individual congregations. That just doesn't happen that way. God wants cities to repent and be forgiven and to attend congregations where pastors can correctly and reasonably care for them. And that's not going to happen if an entire city shows up at the same church at the same time. That just ain't going to work. Some people, and he's looking for a people that will be all in. Law, not gospel. Yeah, and here's the deal. Let's just read through the Ten Commandments, and uh, I won't do that right now, but and ask yourself, are you already all in? I mean, if you're really truly all in, then you're not sinning anymore, are you? You keep the Ten Commandments perfectly because that's what somebody who's all in really is according to the definition set up in Scripture. Most of you know me well enough to know that even more than I'm a pastor, I'm a first-class sinner. Yeah, you are, and you haven't repented of your Bible twisting, which you really need to do because uh, this is the kind of stuff that, uh, that really ends up shipwrecking people's faiths and sending them to hell. You're going to believe that shortly when I tell you this story. Every Friday night, I play cards. I play cards with a group of other men who are also sinners from our church. (laughs) We pay $2 to play, which covers the cost of the soft drinks and the Doritos that we consume. For playing, you get a stack of Ritz crackers to use as chips. (laughs) Now, it's serious if I'm playing for food. Are you with me? I'm a purpose-driven eater, people. And my favorite moment playing cards is when I can look at the cards on the table and I can look at the cards in my hand and I realize I've got the highest possible hand. I can't be beat. And at that moment, I say, all in. 
and I shove my Ritz crackers into the middle (laughs) of the table. We serve an all-in God who is looking for an all-in people. No, actually, we serve a God who was all-in for us because none of us are all-in. And that's the reason why we need to be saved, because all of us, by nature, are dead in trespasses and sins. Each and every one of us is a sinner. And if we could save ourselves by being all in, then Christ Jesus died on the cross for no reason. To do an all-in thing. Few churches get this opportunity. Yeah, none of them do because the Bible doesn't even talk about this. People get this chance. I want to close with one story. The band's going to come out and we're going to celebrate for a bit. Those of you that have heard me over the years know that our kids are adopted. Again, I ask the question, who is he preaching about? We have a 27-year-old son, a 24-year-old daughter, And I love saying that if we had had kids that were biologically our own, they'd have been dumb and ugly because you just can't break genetics. You know what I mean? But because they're adopted, they're bright and they're beautiful. We've always taught them that they are chosen, that they're special kids. When my son was in K-4 in a three-day program at a neighboring church because our little church wasn't big enough to have one. We got a call from his K-4 teacher one day that said, Mr. and Mrs. Sutherland, I'm having a problem with your son at school. Could you come by for a parent-teacher conference tomorrow? Aren't those the words every parent lives to hear? (laughs) So I, I said, sure, we'll come by. And I told my wife and she looked at me and she said, what do you think he's done? I mean, she's panicked. I said, I don't know, but he's only four. It can't be too bad. So we go the next day at the end of the half-day program, and and the teacher meets us, and she's got an assistant who's going to watch Jared for a few minutes while we talk. And and she said, Cue sappy music for manipulation of emotions. Just very nice lady, and we talk for a few minutes. And then she says, well, Mr. and Ms. Sutherland, I'm having a problem with Jared. I understand he's adopted. And I said, yes, he is. He's very proud of it. She said, that's the problem. I said, well, ma'am, I don't understand. How could that be a problem? And she said, he has all the other kids in the classroom feeling bad. I said, well, ma'am, how did he do that? She said, well, we rotate who hands out the snacks each week. And this week has been his week to hand out snacks. So as he hands them out, he has looked every kid in the eye every day and said, My parents chose me. Your parents got stuck with you. I love it. And I looked at the teacher and said, I don't see the problem. The scripture says, to as many as receive him, he gives the right to become the children of of God. Right. And uh, so far, you've basically have defined that along the lines of you've got to make a decision to be all in. That's not what it means to receive Christ. Not born of God, adopted by God. 
chosen by him before the foundation of the world. You are not here today by accident. God has chosen you. He has said, I want to do something so big in Broward County that I'll have to get the credit for it. And I'm looking for a people that will go all in. Yeah, notice uh, the gospel passage that he gave. He just, again, twisted into law. God's looking for an all-in people so that he could do a big, mighty movement in Broward County. But, well, if you don't go all-in, then you're going to miss this opportunity. And few churches ever have that opportunity. You better get off your blessed assurance and get busy. Band's going to lead us in a song of celebration. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you are ready to say, God, I am all in. I am all in. I don't even know everything that that means, but God, I'm all in. For whatever you want to do in my heart and in my church and in my city, I'm all in. Then I'm going to ask you to come and to stand right here in the front. We're going to fill this front area. We're going to fill the aisles. We're going to see if we'll be all in. This time is yours. There you go. So, again, I just asked the question, who exactly was he preaching about? Because every time, every single time, without exception, that Dan Sutherland quoted from the Bible, he twisted it and did not correctly handle it at all. He wasn't preaching about Jesus. He wasn't telling, pointing people to Jesus He was telling them they got to get busy and serve. And every story that he told, well, it was about himself. And it was about them. But it wasn't about Christ. This is what it means to have a man-centered preaching. Man-centered preaching cannot bear What God's word says in context, because the scriptures are about Christ, not you and not me and not them. That's why it has to twist God's word. To make it say things that it doesn't say so that they can make it about themselves. Nowhere in the scripture are the four things that Dan Sutherland claimed were the things that we needed to do. Uh, are they laid out for the things that we have to do in order to experience a movement of God? There isn't a single Bible verse that says any of that stuff. He just made it all up. It's all self-righteousness. It's all self-centered. It's self-aggrandizing and self-stories. Again, notice how every story he taught from his own personal life experience, well, he didn't twist those, did he? Not at all. No. But every time he handled God's word, a verse was ripped out of context, grammar was changed, Jesus was expunged, the gospel manipulated, and it was all turned into the thing you have to do rather than the thing that Christ has done placarded for us. Let me ask you this. Is it God the Holy Spirit who leads men to do this with the scriptures? Or is this the technique of the devil? You answer the question. 
Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. We truly do depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, and thank you for your support. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.